According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to John chapter 2. As we get started this morning, John chapter 2. Having completed the material from last week on the first miracle, the turning of water to wine, we're ready now to move on to verses 13 and following here this morning. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer and assure that distractions are set aside. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come humbly before the throne of grace and acknowledge that you are the source and provision of all grace, including the freedom in this nation to assemble together on a Wednesday morning and receive instruction. We thank you for this. We uh, thank you for the faithful provision of truth and the blessing we have to study to show ourselves approved unto God. We pray for distractions to be set aside. We ask for clear teaching. We ask that you would hedge us about with your protection. We also look to you to supply our needs, the needs of this ministry, to provide for a nursery worker. And we just thank you for all your faithfulness in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Imagine there'll be some ladies coming in as soon as I get situation sorted out back there. Who's watching the children and what's going on? John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. We're tracking a day-by-day account. And there were some days in the passage of days that had been observed in chapter 1. And I'm only highlighting them here this morning to illustrate that John may be writing 30 years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke had been completed. Uh, But he is still very meticulous. He's very detailed. And he is giving us some information that's not found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If all we had was the synoptic gospels, we never would have known about the water turned to wine. We never would have known about a number of things in this early Judean ministry prior to the Galilean ministry. We never would have known that he drove the money changers out of the temple twice. And uh, what we're looking at here this morning in verses 13 through 25 where he drives them out of the temple is not to be confused with the second time that he drives them out of the temple. I'm going to give you all the scriptures on this this morning. But I just want you to notice that we have time references consistently in these chapters. And uh, that we don't want to just blow all that off and say, well, John was old and confused and he got his dates mixed up. Okay, that's a human approach to the scriptures. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And so we accept this as an accurate record. Likewise, the references to the Passover in the Gospel of John. We're very fortunate that we have the Gospel of John and these time references to the Passover feasts. And we're going to see those this morning as well. So looking at verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was near where we left off. Actually, we've got to deal with verse 12 first. Uh, After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. All right. We're going to focus on that, and then we'll launch into the cleansing of the temple, the trip to Jerusalem, and the things that happen there. We recognize, if you want to just keep an outline on here, I've got seven items I want to give you from this uh, half of chapter 2. First of all, Following the Cana wedding, Jesus spent a few days in Capernaum. 
Following the Cana wedding, Jesus spent a few days in Capernaum. And that's what we glean out of verse 12. And you say, well, who cares where he stayed? (laughs) Well, the Holy Spirit obviously did because he put it here in the scripture for us to learn from. And we're going to recognize a number of aspects when it comes to ministry, when it comes to balancing the needs of his ministry, balancing his activities with his disciples, balancing the activity with his mother, with his brothers, with his family life and the things there. I've read some very interesting accounts of things with respect to Jesus Christ that make it look like he totally blew off his family uh, consistently, see. And they'll quote the passage, for example, where he's teaching Bible class and his mother and his brothers are outside waiting for him to come out because they wanted to speak to him. And I've read commentators that use that passage and the stories like it and say, well, see, he, he was focused. He had priority ministries and he was dealing with, with God's will for his life and he was setting them aside. That's not what the passage says. <laughs> the passage says they needed to talk to him and he used that as an opportunity to illustrate a point. And the passage doesn't say that he blew them off. For all we know, he made his point, and then he went out and he ministered to his mother, to his brothers, and the things there. We see that here in this passage as well, in the resettling of his family. So he spends a few days in Capernaum. He, after, it says, after this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Why didn't they stay there longer? Well, the next verse tells us, Passover was approaching. They were expected to be in Jerusalem to participate in the Passover feast. Some point A, just give you some points here on Capernaum. He apparently established a place of residence for his earthly family. Remember, they weren't from Capernaum. Where were they from? They were from Nazareth. Nazareth is where he was brought up. Nazareth is where uh, all the, the village people, the town people knew him, knew his family, knew his siblings. He had, in fact, he had trouble even ministering in Nazareth because they, they didn't have the objectivity to get over his childhood. All right. But here they're relocating. They're setting up a, a headquarters, as it were. We see the detail on this over in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 13. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 13. Chapter 4 is the uh, temptation incident. And then... Uh, his withdrawal into Galilee in verse 12. So, effectively, in Matthew 4, in between verse 11 and verse 12, you've got to put uh, John chapters 2, 3, 4, 5. Okay? A number of chapters in John come in between those two verses there in Matthew. That's where the, the harmony of the Gospels is really going to help you out. He withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled. This is not just for a few days. This is actually... Uh, you know, go to the post office and fill out your change of, uh, of uh, residence form. You know, get your mail forwarded. He is now setting up residence in Capernaum. He's going to transfer his voter registration. He's going to, you know, transfer his utilities and all the things you've got to do when you change your residence. Which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And interesting quotations there from Isaiah and the things with respect to Galilee of the Gentiles. Uh, this event here in verse 12, returning back now to John 2, um, was in all likelihood not the permanent move, but simply the first trip to Capernaum where they stay a few days, they're finding a residence, finding a place to set up, and then the move will, the uh, relocation from Nazareth to uh, uh, Capernaum that we see in Matthew 4 is likely after this particular trip here. 
in any event. So point B, Capernaum will become his base of operations throughout his Galilean ministry. This is going to become the hub, as it were. This is going to be his starting point and his ending point for a lot of the circuits that he travels as he goes to the various places that he goes to in the Galilean region and across the Sea of Galilee. He'll make a number of sailing trips across the sea to the eastern shore where he'll go over to Decapolis and he'll go over to some of the regions over there. Uh, Gadara and some of the other places where he casts out demons and does some other things on the eastern shore. And some, And on at least one occasion he doesn't sail across, he walks across. And we'll, <laughs> we'll deal with that when we get to that particular miracle. All right. But the base of operations and some of these are are interesting um, concepts because we not only see Christ using this method, but we see Paul using this method in the book of Acts where he will arrive in a region. And usually he will center in the the big population center, a huge city like Ephesus or Athens or uh, Corinth and so forth. He'll uh, go into the synagogue. He'll teach in the in the city. Uh, He'll turn to the Gentiles once the Jews reject him. And then from there, though. Missionaries are sent out into some of the other villages and the places nearby. And so this uh, this operation here is kind of interesting. In fact, looking at the Lord's headquarters in Capernaum and looking at Paul and Barnabas and their headquarters in Antioch gives us a remarkable pattern for, I think, for effective local church ministry, for example, where we send out missionaries, we send out evangelists and and a pattern that can be applied in uh, in the dispensation of the church. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 1, getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. Such was the identification of Capernaum that having made it his headquarters, having traveled back and forth across the sea, having traveled on land in the Galilean region, even having gone as far as Phoenicia, the Phoenician regions, he always kept coming back to Capernaum and to the point now where Capernaum was identified as his own city. Point C, Capernaum means village of Nahum. In the Hebrew, a kafar, a village. Kafar na'um, village of Nahum. But its relationship to the Old Testament prophet by that name is unknown. There's a lot of speculation. Rabbis all felt that this was either his birthplace or where he was buried, and yet we don't know where his tomb is if he was buried there. <laughs> See? But the the, uh, meaning of Capernaum, the village of Nahum, its relationship to the Old Testament writing prophet by that name is unknown. Interestingly enough, both Jonah and Nahum had ministry to the northeast, had ministry to Assyria, to Nineveh specifically. And uh, Jonah certainly was a Galilean, but if, uh, if this is literally the village of Nahum, then that would have made Nahum also a Galilean. And uh, we're adding to our list of Galilean prophets, which flies in the face of the Pharisee proverb that says, search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. <laughs> All right. So we can name at least two and likely also Elijah the Tishbite. There's disagreement over where Tishba, you know, the origin of Tish, Tishba for Elijah is. But Elijah was also most likely a, a Galilean as well when it comes right down to it. Um, As far as that goes. Now, point two. The Passover recorded in the Gospel, the Passovers, plural, sorry, Passovers recorded in the Gospel of John help us to establish a timeline for the ministry of Jesus Christ. So here is a reference to a Passover. Very important. 
Remember, John was written 30 years or more after the other Gospels, maybe 40 years or more after the other Gospels. All right, depending on when you do your synchronization of New Testament books. Um, If all we had was Matthew, Mark, and Luke, how long would you speculate the ministry of Jesus Christ would be? We really wouldn't have any way to know. In fact, there would be nothing in Matthew, Mark, and Luke to give us anything over maybe a year or so. But in the Gospel of John, we start having Passovers mentioned. And every time a Passover is referenced, we realize, hey, a year's gone by. And so we are, in fact, indebted to the Gospel of John for helping us to track what uh, most believe to be the three and a half year ministry of Jesus Christ, having been uh, baptized in the fall of of, uh, 29 A.D. and uh, going to the cross Passover of 33 A.D. All right. I realize that there are some folks out there that don't like the 33 A.D. date. They like the 32 A.D. date, the 30 A.D. date or what have you. I won't part fellowship over the crucifixion date, but uh, I I do think that the best homework on that points to 33 A.D. Uh, Notice Passover in chapter 2 and verse 13. Notice over in chapter 6. Um, after these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. He's still in this mode of, of uh, ascending popularity where the flocks, the crowds are still flocking to him. And Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was near. And it's interesting when it, when, uh, uh, He's, he's had all this care to go to every Passover, to not miss a Passover, to not miss a Passover. And uh, what's he doing here on the other side of the Sea of Galilee? Well, we'll deal with that when we get that far. Chapter 12 also mentions uh, Passover, and this is the one shortly before, the, or this is the one of his crucifixion. Shortly before the, uh, he has his triumphal entry. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. They made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him, and Mary was not, and Martha was busy serving, and Mary was there doing this, and we'll get to the aspects there. But we see the Passover's mentioned. Now, in chapter 5, there is a feast mentioned, and if you ever want to read a hundred extremely boring theological journal articles... You can read articles that debate whether this was a Passover or not. As it says in chapter 5, after these things, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And whether this was Passover, whether this was Pentecost, whether this was uh, Tabernacles, those were the three pilgrimage feasts where the, uh, uh, the males were required to appear. But it may have been another feast. It does not specifically say it was a Pascha. Um, but in all likelihood it was. So in any event, these are some of the clues we get for the chronology of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. There are other clues that this chapter here also contains. For example, when he tells them to, uh, when he says, destroy this temple, returning out in John 2, when he says, destroy this temple in verse 19, and in three days I will raise it up, the Jews then said it took 46 years to build this temple. Okay, That's a time marker. That's a clue. That's a little bit of evidence where we can uh, synchronize the ministry of Jesus Christ with other uh, secular dates and the historical records that we have available to us from the period as well. 
All right. So we have a time frame. And that's why in your harmonies of the gospel here that you have at home, or if you don't have one, pick one up. Uh, we follow this uh, sequence that has the crucifixion on Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D. All right. But in any event, there are other studies out there. And so if you read a, an alternative view, um, just be advised. All right. So let's read what happens here on this Passover. The Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. All right. Seated. Very comfortable. <laughs> well entrenched, shall we say. Okay. And it's part of that. I think it's that, that vivid description that we have here throughout this chapter, you know, where he went to Jerusalem and he stayed and, and here another Seated. Some of the, the action verbs in this passage are pretty uh, vivid in their description. They're not just there, they're selling, but they are seated, entrenched. This is their turf, their territory. They are running the, uh, the show. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers that overturned their tables and to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. All right. So much that we can do with this passage and passages similar to this. <clears throat> Point three. The early cleansing of the temple preceded the arrest of John the Baptist and the Lord's Galilean ministry. It is therefore not to be confused with the cleansing of the temple he accomplished during his Passion Week. You have it in Matthew 21, verses 12 through 16, which was very clearly in the Passion Week. You have it in Mark 11, 15 through 18, clearly in the Passion Week. Luke 19, 45 through 47. Okay? So I'm going to read this one more time here in John 2, then we'll look at these other ones. The statement that he makes, and this is the Gospel of John is in a lot of ways the, you know, the odd man out when it comes to the synoptic Gospels and their accounts and John and his account, because as we've been saying, 40 years later, he has the opportunity to reveal what has not been previously revealed by Matthew, Mark and Luke. All right. He makes the whip. He drives them out, flips over their tables. The statement that he makes deals with the commerce. Stop making my father's house a place of business. It is his father's house. It is not a place for men to be profiting themselves. Okay? So keep that statement in mind and keep this event in mind. Uh, because there might be some that try to say, well, this is the same and he only did it once and, you know, John was just confused. You know, he put it out of order. He put it early instead of late. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> if John's confused, then I've got a problem because maybe John was confused about what he said there in John 3.16. You know, was he confused about that? <laughs> was John confused about God so loving the world and believing in him? And, you know, if all of a sudden John's not trustworthy, then uh, I think... We've got some problems here. Look at Matthew for a moment. Matthew 21. Recognizing. Keep in mind, what, what disciples have we seen so far? We've seen Andrew, Peter, James, 
John. We've seen Philip. We've, we've seen Nathaniel. We've seen Matthew yet? No. He hasn't called the tax collector yet. The tax collector is still collecting taxes. He's not following Jesus Christ yet. So why am I shocked that uh, he hasn't recorded this early cleansing of the temple? He wasn't there. He was still collecting taxes. But John was there. Okay? Mark and Luke weren't even disciples. All right. Matthew 21. Uh, the triumphal entry and uh, the things there. Verse 12. Okay, so the crowds are hailing him as he's coming in on the donkey. He's fulfilling Zechariah and these other passages. And uh, the children are shouting. The people are shouting. Here's the palm branches on uh, this wonderful Palm Monday, by the way. <laughs> we'll deal with that, too, when we get this far. Uh, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. He quotes the scripture, but you are making it a robber's den. You are making it a robber's den. A little bit different language than the uh, house of merchandise. All right, robber's den. Likewise in Mark 11. Triumphal entry precedes it. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. See, the Pharisees hated him. They rejected him. They denied he was the Christ. They crucified him. But the children had it figured out. See, here's the son of David. Coming in, accepting, praising their king, praising this prophet. Then uh, verse 15, he came to Jerusalem, entered the temple, began to drive out. Notice uh, a lot more detail there in verses uh, 15 and 16, especially when it says he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And <clears throat> he began to teach and to say to them, it is not, is it not written my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. There's the robber's den again. Not the house of merchandise, but the robber's den. Luke 19. <clears throat> Triumphal entry. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in the heaven and glory in the highest. <laughs> and some of the Pharisees in the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. It was required that the king be acknowledged. Then, uh, again, verse 45, Jesus entered the temple, began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, It is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer. Again, quoting the Old Testament scriptures, but you have made it a robber's den. All right. Significant differences, and we don't confuse these events. This is an early episode. An early episode where business was being transacted. Profit was being made. But what happens, for example, we've got some teaching on this coming up, but just consider some things. What happens when... Uh, 
demons are driven out of a person. And Christ warns about unless caution is taken, unless the believer is on there, or not the, the believer, but unless the unbeliever gets saved, what's going to happen to that unbeliever after a demon's been driven out? They're coming back. And they're going to be worse. There's going to be more of them. See? And I kind of think in those concepts with reference to these two cleansing of the temples because he drove them out. And now they have a chance to have a fresh start. They have a chance to operate in the temple in the best way. No. (laughs) It gets even worse. Because the legitimate merchants are now gone and now the the organized crime racket that takes place, Mr. Dowd's taught a number of times, the... uh, Robber's den is now firmly entrenched when it comes to the things that we're going to see in the later chapters here. But this is the first time, not the second time, and we want to keep these as separate events. There are, as, you, as I said, there might be some authors that try to confuse them, try to say that, uh, well, this was the same event and John was just mixed up on his timing. No, John's being very careful on his timing. In fact, John's giving us the Passover by Passover by Passover chronology. So if anybody's sloppy about timing, it's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. <laughs> all right? But nobody's sloppy about timing because the Holy Spirit is writing all four of these Gospels. All right. <clears throat> Those who were selling the doves. They weren't robbers. They were businessmen. He said, take these things away. Stop making This is the prohibition with the may and the present imperative that says it's already in progress. Stop doing it. All right. This is what they're doing. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Point four. Now, Jesus undoubtedly attended Passover every year and did not stop doing so at the age of 12. We don't have the record of it. Scripture doesn't tell us about what you know, happened on Passover when he was 13, when he was 14, when he was 15. What happened at Passover uh, the first time that he went after Joseph died? We don't know. But there's no reason to believe that he stopped going to Passover because what the Scripture does tell us is that he was brought up in keeping with the teachings of the law. That they were very devout. They were very careful to fulfill all the requirements of the law, which would have meant that they were observing the Passover feast. This Passover, however, was his first as the Holy Spirit anointed Christ. This was his first as the Holy Spirit anointed Christ. There were an awful lot of anointings in the Old Testament. Prophets, priests, and kings, that were all oil anointed. They had oil smeared on their heads. Jesus Christ was Holy Spirit anointed, see, as the Christ. And he uh, he loses it. Is that a fair statement to make? <laughs> Bible right here says he was consumed. He was consumed. I find it remarkable the way the uh, unbeliever and the skeptic and those that would criticize Christians of certain things. And one of the things they would criticize would be zeal. Would be passion. Would be any kind of... Uh, enthusiasm for what you believe. And if you show any kind of enthusiasm for what you believe, well, then what are you? You're a fanatic. Right. You're just a, an extremist. A right-wing Christian nutso extremist. In fact, you're no different than a Muslim extremist, see. And they 
use the label extremist because you actually have some enthusiasm for what you believe. Okay? Yeah, the Muslim fanatic has enthusiasm for what he believes too. <laughs> All right? And so he enthusiastically does what he does, blows himself up and you know, thinks he's going to go to uh, heaven and get his 72 virgins and all the things there. He's pretty enthusiastic about that. See. But let's not, uh, let's not allow the cosmos to dictate to us how we uh, profess our faith or how we express our enthusiasm or indeed, truly, if we are convicted by the Holy Spirit in a matter, to hold to our convictions. See. And zeal... If it's, uh, if it's in keeping with teaching, is proper. Uh, zeal, when it's not consistent with teaching, is a problem. <laughs> and uh, Paul, in fact, testifies. He says, my countrymen are very zealous, only not in accordance with teaching. All right? But if it is in accordance with teaching, zeal is, is, is wonderful. It should be. And uh, that's going to be one of the attributes of God we're going to look at, or in terms of his personality we're going to look at, in terms of his jealousy. God is jealous. He is jealous and zealous, and it's the same word. All right. In any event, so that we have those things coming up here as well. This is his first Passover as the Christ, as the spirit anointed Christ, I should say, following his baptism, following the launching of his public ministry. Some point A, before Jesus could ever reach a priest or a Levite, (laughs) he encountered merchants and bankers. What's he supposed to find when he gets to the temple? Priests and Levites and worshipers, right. Before he can even find a priest or a Levite, who's he running into? Merchants and bankers. Matter of fact, we don't see any priest, any Levite, anywhere in this chapter. We have the, uh, the Jews mentioned in verse 18, and undoubtedly a number of them were priests and Levites. It just doesn't say so. The Jews in verse 20. And... Uh, um, a reference to many in Jerusalem in verse 23, but the actual term priest, Levite, doesn't occur. But he does find merchants and he does find bankers, money changers, see, those that claim their fees. You know, banking fees are nothing new. <laughs> I need a money order to send off to a Ukrainian embassy. Okay, cost you a dollar. You know, well, that's the way it works, see. And they're a bank, and that's what they charge, and they can charge when they want to charge, I guess. All right? And uh, this racket here is quite interesting in terms of all of the um, uh, people from the diaspora that come in from all these other countries and so forth, and they come from Greece, and they come from Africa and Libya and Pontius and all these other regions. And, uh, well, you obviously need to have the approved temple currency to pay your tithes, so... uh, We'll gladly make that transaction for you, converting your drachmas and converting your Roman uh, currency and all the rest. All for a profit, of course. Point B. Just as, uh, Jesus, as the Christ, forcibly evicted the profiteers from the earthly place of God the Father's personal residence. My Father's house. My Father's house. Now, he owns the universe, he created the universe, he's outside of space and time. But this location, this spot of ground with a building on it, is where he chose to make his name dwell. 
This is the one place on planet Earth more than any place else. It's kind of awkward to talk about when you think of omnipresence, all right? Because obviously God is everywhere in omnipresence, but he is here in a very special way. He, is, he chose the temple as the place where man could approach him uh, in a very particular way on the basis of holiness, on the basis of sacrifice, on the basis of worship. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, this is my father's house. And these people were profiting from it. They found a place where they could make some money. And that's not why the Lord let David and then later Solomon, and why the Lord let Solomon build a temple. Not so that men could get rich. So that man could approach the holiness of God in a very specific way, in a very unique way. Unlike anywhere else, say, no Gentile nation had such privilege. Gentiles could get saved. Gentiles could pray. Gentiles didn't, weren't even obligated to ever go to Jerusalem. See, like the Jews were obligated to go as God's covenant people. But Jerusalem was the place where a priesthood could approach the holiness of God, the, the visible manifestation, the Shekinah glory. See, a very unique location. And Christ threw him out. Absolutely threw him out. You know, you read through this, and I have a hard time finding the pansy that all those artists paint in their, uh, you know, the Renaissance artists that have all this rather effeminate-looking Jesus guy with the long hair and the real tender look and the loving eyes. And he just, in my mind, am I, am I, do I need counseling? Is, am, I, <laughs> am I a little too sensitive on this subject? I don't know. But to, to me, all those painters just make him look like a total... Was, say, and that's not the description of this passage. He made a, scour a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. You know, it's interesting, too. You read the history. They had guards. They had armed guards. The temple precincts were well defended. And they didn't stop what he was doing. All right. Poured the coins, of the money changers and overturned their tables. He drove them out. Emphasis on my father's house. When he comes back a second time, he's going to use it as a teaching opportunity. He's going to have scriptures. He's going to say, this is supposed to be for prayer. And you're making money on it. In fact, illegally, in that case, this robber's den. Not only were they fleecing the other folks, but they were also uh, engaged in their other organized crime rackets out of the temple. Point C, stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. It's not what it's here for. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. A lot of places, especially in the Gospel of John, where Jesus Christ is trying to communicate what his father's house is all about. Even when he's anticipating his crucifixion and his resurrection. And he says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Here he's trying to communicate the seriousness of the Father's house, and it's not a place where we're supposed to be making money on the deal. Stop making my Father's house. Stop making. Me poeta. I mentioned before, we've got the uh, negative particle me plus the present imperative of poeo, indicating the activity is already in progress. You need to stop doing it. It's different from saying don't do something that hasn't started yet. You know, like um, you tell your kids, 
don't smoke cigarettes or don't do drugs or whatever, and you're telling them they haven't started yet, and you're telling them don't do it. Don't even start doing it. Don't ever do it. Okay, that's a prohibition. But if it's something they're already doing, in other words, they already started drinking, they already started smoking, they already started whatever they're doing, all right, then then the imperative is, all right, stop. <laughs> Go and sin no more, all right? You can't change what's been done already, but from this point forward, stop doing this, okay, whatever it is. And that's what we have here. The language is the language of an activity already in progress. Stop making. And this is Tan Oikon, the house of my father, to Patras Mu. Stop making the house of my father an entirely different kind of house. The word house is used twice. Stop making my father's house a house of an emporium, as it were. It's where we get the English emporium, and we'll give you the vocabulary on that here in a moment. But the imperative leads off the, uh, leads off the sentence, the me poeta, stop making. Stop making. That's the emphasis. Stop making. You've got to stop doing this. See? Stop and consider the aspects of worship and how serious it is. All right? I mean, Nadab and Abihu are my favorite illustrations, but there's so many more. Is God, is he indifferent about how we approach him? Absolutely not. He's very particular on how we approach him. No, in fact, if you glance over to chapter 4, a super passage and one with all kinds of teaching here, and you got this Samaritan woman and these other things going on. But if you'll notice, when he says God is spirit and must be worshipped in spirit and in truth, I want you to see what it says here. Now, this is a woman that's got this question. She's all wrapped up about mountains. You know, and the Samaritans had their holy mountain, which they thought was the true mountain, and they thought that the Jews were wrong about their mountain. And he wants, and she wants him to answer her question about which mountain is the mountain to go to. And he basically says, you Samaritans are wrong. The Jews are right. Salvation is from the Jews. The Jewish scriptures are, pertain, are revealing the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then he goes on. He says, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Okay, it's not going to be centered on a geographical location. Because in reality, in the dispensation of the church, which is soon to be appearing as, as Christ is teaching this, every believer is a temple. See, so what are you going to go to Jerusalem for? <laughs> Wherever you go, you're a temple. Temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. Okay, but he says, An hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, and you've got to grab on to the last part of that verse. For such people, the Father seeks to be His worshipers. There are work assignments that the Father will designate to the Son and delegate. There are work assignments that the Father will delegate to the Holy Spirit. Say, the Son was delegated to be incarnate in the flesh and to live an earthly life and to go to the cross. The Holy Spirit is delegated to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, to indwell believers, to provide spiritual gifts. There are, there are work assignments that the Father has delegated to the Son and delegated to the Holy Spirit. We can find them throughout Scripture. But there are also work assignments that God the Father does not delegate, that He maintains them Himself. See? And I like, uh, we even sing a hymn that uh, 
says the protection of his child and treasure is a charge that on himself he laid. As thy days, thy strength shall be in measure. Wonderful hymn, all right? But the concept is there that he lays it on himself. He's not delegating. He is personally going to deal with this. And worship is one of those. The Father seeks to be his worshipers. See, God the Father is concerned that we don't just approach him any old way we feel like it. And he taught that right from the very beginning in terms of Cain and Abel. See, if it was no big deal and you could just approach God any old way, then what was wrong with what Cain was doing? What was wrong with the vegetable offering? What was wrong with, with that approach? Because it makes a difference. It does matter. And to take the house of God and turn it into a, a marketplace, turn it into a place where you can make some money, it's not what it's there for. And so it becomes a serious matter. Vocabulary is emporion. E-M-P-O-R-I-O-N. Emporion. And it's the only place in the Bible emporion occurs. Number 1712. It's, it's simply, it's a place where trade is carried on. In the Greek writers, it was used especially of a seaport. Seaports were valuable. Because a seaport was where a ship could come in loaded with merchandise. A place where trade is carried on, used especially of a seaport. Of course, the Greeks were a seafaring people. The Greek nation had many seaports where a lot of commerce could take place. But John 2.16 is the only place where emporion occurs. There are three related terms, though, that are used elsewhere in Scripture. That emporion, E-M-P-O-R-I-O-N. Secondly, emporos, E-M-P-O-R-O-S. And the accent's actually on the first syllable, so it's emporos. And emporos, number 1713. And this is a person who does business in the emporion. Somebody who goes on a journey, especially for trade, i.e. a business travel, business trip. Not a tourist, <laughs> but somebody who is traveling far and wide because that's how he's going to make his money. A merchant. The Greeks actually had different terms for somebody in a little shop or somebody that had a local uh, market and so forth. This guy isn't just a basic retailer or a tradesman. The emperor is somebody that travels great distances. He'd be like a corporate buyer, so to speak. He'd be somebody that's dealing in, in futures markets, somebody that's uh, buying wholesale and, and, and trying to find uh, markets for, uh, for his product, as it were. Five times in the Scriptures, it's used in Matthew 13.45, then it's used four times in Revelation 18. It's used of commercial Babylon. It's used of the, the great Babylon that's going to fall. Let me just grab that real quick. Revelation 18. Because this, this really does touch upon why all this zeal is, is totally driving Christ in his uh, berserker-type rage here in this chapter. Revelation 18, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now, this is prophetic. This is looking ahead to the tribulation. This will occur uh, during the tribulation of Israel. 
She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth, there's the emperos or the plural emperoi. The merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. This isn't just a, a typical retailer. These are the worldwide merchants that are traveling far and wide and, and spreading their, uh, not just their wealth, but their uh, idolatry. See, isn't it fascinating how we, everybody talks about this trade deficit. The United States of America maintains a trade deficit. We import more than we export every year. Why is that? Because we've got the money to do so. See, and we can buy the cheapest stuff from any country on earth and ship it here. That's the nature of our economy. What is it that we export? Our filth, <laughs> our sin, our idolatry, our entertainment. Interestingly enough, verse 11, the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple and silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every article of ivory, every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble, and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. In other words, everything, everything under the sun, you name it, it passes through this marketplace. These merchants will deal in it. Verse 15 has the merchants. Verse 23 has these merchants. It says, The light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer, and the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in you any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. So the fall of commercial Babylon predicted for tribulational times. And this is what's driving the Lord so berserk when he walks into the temple and he sees this emporium. He's supposed to see prayer. He's supposed to see dedication to God the Father. He's supposed to see the humility of fallen man approaching God the Father on the basis of the holiness that he supplies. And instead he sees an emporium. And the Spirit convicts him. A third term is the verb, emporiuamai. Emporiuamai. This is the verb, number 1710, to travel for business purposes, to traffic, to trade. It's used twice. James 4.13, 2 Peter 2.3. It's used twice. You're familiar with both passages. In James 4, where you're supposed to learn how to say, if the Lord wills. Right. Don't just say, hey, I'm going to go to this other country and I'm going to do business there for a year and I'm going to come back. No, no, no. Everything we say would be, if the Lord wills. Or we can develop the principles of wisdom there in James 4.13. It's also used in 2 Peter 2.3. And I forget the context of that one, but it's another one very familiar to us. Um, uh I'm going to have to double check on that verse because I may have the wrong verse there. 
and poor you am I to travel for traffic, for business, for traffic, or to trade. I thought I had uh, double-checked all these verses. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. And I'm not seeing it there. I'll double-check that and have that for you by next week. And then the fourth term is the noun for emporia, E-M-P-O-R-I-A, meaning merchandise. It's used in Matthew 22 and verse 5. The noun emporia, number 1711. Emporia is used for merchandise, Matthew 22 and verse 5. The invitation has gone out. Come to the feast. Come to the wedding feast. Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat and livestock, and all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his emporia, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. But the king was enraged. We'll deal with some of that. In fact, we're going to use... The marriage supper of the Lamb is kind of a conclusion to our marriage series that we're doing in 1 Corinthians. So we'll have more information on the marriage supper of the Lamb coming up. But this is what Jesus Christ found. See? And these are the things we want to learn from. Because all too often in the church age, and dare I say in American Christianity, uh, churches are businesses. And big ministries become big business, money-making opportunities, writing a books, selling a product, making money, see, launching another trendy campaign. As somebody said here a few years back, what would Jesus do? Well, he probably wouldn't start a $6 billion marketing campaign for gadgets with WWJD printed on them, okay? Not being critical, scornful, mocking, I'm just commenting, all right. Are we a business? Because there's a church in Revelation 3 that thought they were rich and in need of nothing. And had no idea that they were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. See. <laughs> and as we watch the church progress from Ephesus to Laodicea, we can see the course of church age. We can see the early church. We can see the persecuted church. We can see the dead medieval church. We can see... The Reformed Church. And all these people today that love the Reformed tradition, they don't want to comment on the fact that the Reformed Church is presented in Revelation 2 and 3. Alright? They can see the Revival Church. The Great Missionary Church. They can see the Laodicea Church. Hello, where we are today. Alright. Are we a business? Are we doing this for the money? What does 1 Peter 5 say? Are we doing it for the money? Let's, let's join there. 1 Peter chapter 5. So you've got to beware of these sheep in false clothing. You've got to beware of the hireling who is not the shepherd. John chapter 10. 1 Peter 5 says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. See, this is... A pattern for how a local church can operate. Not to how to set up a worldwide religion. Not how to set up some hierarchy of stuff with Peter as the first pope. Peter is not the first pope. Peter says, I'm simply your fellow elder. And uh, you pastors can follow this example. And this is how you can function in your local church. 
your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Shepherd the flock of God among you. And Cliff started to deal with this a little bit on Sunday night, but didn't quite go as far with it in terms of um, every believer is a spirit-filled priest. Absolutely. And every believer can pick up the Bible and read the Bible and learn things. Absolutely. But, as Cliff pointed out, the design, the ideal design is for the local church. The ideal design is not to teach yourself from what you read out of the Bible, but to be taught by a pastor teacher. And specifically, this passage highlights the fact that, yes, you're, a, you're an anointed, spirit-filled priest, but you're part of a priesthood. Okay? And not only are you a spirit-anointed priest, you're a sheep. Ah, wait a minute. <laughs> Because what does a sheep need? A shepherd. And what happens to a sheep without a shepherd? They're scattered. They're eaten. They're devoured. Shepherd, the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. That's the word for uh, the episkopos, the overseer. Not under compulsion, but voluntarily. See, volition has to be exercised. If you're a pastor, it's got to be volitional. If you're a Sunday school teacher, volitional. If you're watching the nursery, volitional. If you're making tapes, volitional. If you're cutting the grass, volitional. If you're changing light bulbs, volitional. Whatever you're doing. And whatever service, if it gets to be non-volitional, if it's compulsion, if you're just grumbling about it, well, i got to do it, nobody else is doing it, forget it. Don't do it. It's got to be voluntary, not under compulsion according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. See, you're not in it for the money. Not using religion to make money. See, like so many churches do, so many religions have done, as was happening in the temple when Jesus Christ walked in and He saw they were making money nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. See. It's uh, not only in First Peter chapter 5, we have the warnings in John chapter 10. And I'm going to close with some of these thoughts. I, I really don't want to get on to point 5 yet, because that's going to take us much of next week. Um, but look what it says in John chapter 10. Is this a money-making operation? Is this a business? No. If it was a business, then the pastor is just a hireling and not a shepherd. And that's bad news for the sheep. <laughs> All right. Um, verse 7, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. For the sheep did not hear them. Notice verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. This is the problem you run into when a local church stops functioning like a local church and starts functioning like a business See, and the hireling who's in it for the money, who's in it dealing with it like it's a business, 
will start to look at other things, not the sheep, see, and start to realize, man, you know, they don't pay me enough for this. <laughs> or, hey, this other group will pay me more. So I'll jump here and go to this other church. Or I'll jump here and go write this book. Or I'll compromise the message so that I can flatter my people so that they'll give more. See, I realize that, uh, that uh, you know, adultery is wrong, but, you know, this guy is my, the chairman of my deacon board. He's the biggest giver in the church. I know he's got a mistress, but, you know, uh, this is all hypothetical. Have you gathered that? Okay. But I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to start preaching about adultery because, you know, <laughs> i got to keep them coming in. i got to keep the money rolling in. we got to keep the ministry going. we got this image to maintain. Are we a business? Are we a ministry? Are we making money? Are we tending sheep? See, John the Baptist spoke out about Herod's uh, improper marriage and, and lost his head for it. Okay, well, good example. <laughs> Can't compromise the word because of money. Are you a hireling or are you a shepherd? And uh, if the sheep have a hireling instead of a shepherd, they're in trouble. That's what John 10 points out. That's what Ezekiel 34 points out. That's what 1 Peter 5 points out. That's what 1 Timothy 3 points out in the aspects there. All right. So keep these things in mind. Read through Revelation 3. Remind yourself what Laodicea was all about. The church that made him made the Lord want to puke. Okay? That's what he encounters when he walks into this temple here in John chapter 2. And I'll just tease you with this for next week. Um, this isn't the first time he's seen this. Alright? We'll deal with that next week as well. Any questions? Anything before I close in prayer? Anything fuzzy? Anything you just can't wait for tonight? Alright, surely. Uh-huh. Question mark. Oh, where he says, is it not written? Uh-huh. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And then the question mark. Question mark is not in the quote, but the question mark is stated because he phrased it as a question, is it not written? And then he makes the quote, and so it becomes a question by virtue of the way that he asked it. The rhetorical question, like when Paul says, have you not heard? Did you not know? Is it not written? It's, it's really a powerful rebuke to say, yes, you've heard. Yes, you should know. Yes, it has been written. You're not this ignorant, are you? <laughs> it's a way, in terms of a rhetorical question, to uh, make his point quite forcefully. So, yeah, that's a great question. Great question. All right. Yes, ma'am. Yes. That whole stretch is is symbolic. That whole stretch is apocalyptic in its in its symbolism, and uh, birds are quite often represented as demons, fallen angels. Uh, Satan is the prince of the power of the air, and so birds are the symbol that are often used to represent. For instance, it's the birds that come and snatch away the seed that's sown by the roadside. Okay. 
uh, it's birds that infest the branches as the mustard seed grows into a huge tree and the demons get very involved in local church ministries. Um, birds are often viewed as an angelic representation in the in the passage there. So, yeah, in Revelation, you got to figure out what you're going to do with religious Babylon, commercial Babylon, political Babylon. And some treat them all as one and the same. Some treat them as different objects and different things. And, and they get kind of confused because they try to uh, correlate current events with prophetic events. And uh, we've got to be cautious about that because that can change from generation to generation, from day to day, seemingly. All right. Uh, a lot of people get really excited about, you know, a merchant who sits on many waters and who trades on many waters. And they say, hey, wait a minute. You know, uh, United States sits on many waters. We've got the Pacific Ocean. We've got the Atlantic Ocean. We're trading in Asia. We're trading in Europe. We're trading in Africa. Uh, don't aren't we? Uh, you know, isn't that passage of commercial Babylon rather descriptive of what we're doing? Well, maybe. <laughs> but let's not relate now with then because things could be entirely different then. Who's to say the United States will still be in existence after the rapture of the church and on into the tribulation of Israel? All right. A lot of things that uh, I'm not prophesying the doom of our nation. <laughs> Because I'm not a prophet. If I get one wrong prophet, you know, prophecy, you've got to stone me to death. So I'm not a prophet. But I'm saying we want to be cautious with those passages in Revelation and so forth and handle them prophetically and not with current events. All right. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.